and welcome to the Dicer Screen Podcast. <laughs> yeah, roar. You're like Godzilla, right? After he gets out of Tokyo Harbor. <laughs> uh, I am provably Mike, and you are. Well, I'm Randy, and hey, we're together, the Dice of Streaming Podcast, coming at you again. Hey, this week we're going to be talking about Harn, everything Harn. Harn with a little uh, V over the A, what they call it, a little fancy thing. <laughs> oh, uh, tragically, it's not an umlaut, because I know everything with an umlaut, but uh, yeah, the, the, the little. Hans Umlaut. You know, <laughs> uh, I forget what the notation for that is. But yeah, Harn has its own uniquely uh, difficult language. Oh, as, yeah. As well as its own uniquely difficult everything. <laughs> it's. Who are we kidding? Everything about it was uh, pretty precise in terms of magnificent detail, which is why it makes such a great thing to look back on as one of the examples of gaming that. Frankly, it was far more widespread in its success than the fantasy wargaming, which we examined, uh, like, about, oh, not even a whole year, but, like, uh, hey, yeah, earlier much earlier in the year. We took a look at that. Right on, right on. And this, this is something very different, something that had much more widespread appeal. But anyway, um, I would like to put that up against the Warhammer Fantasy roleplay. Uh, Harn is definitely the grim and gritty. But before we get too deep into it, I'd also like to mention again, thanks, shout out to all our listeners and sponsors. Thanks a lot for those who promote the podcast. We are really grateful for your monthly support. So if you would like to become a sponsor, of course, you can just uh, use the old link wrap there and uh, put your pledge up on there and uh, we'll appreciate it. We'll put you up there. We're also working on getting some merch. So yeah, all our patrons each uh, year will be getting a yearly gift, whether it's going to be a t-shirt or a dice bowl or a cup or just a mug. Our first uh, one is probably going to be a mug. So all you guys have been there for a couple of years uh, supporting us here. As yeah, it's going on three years, um, over three years. Yeah, with, and a year uh, with support. Right, yeah, your full year was your sport for you guys, so thanks a lot. Um, we'll definitely be getting out something soon. As soon as we can get a, an agreement on what we want our symbol to be, Mike's working on that right now. Yeah, and new logo, uh, examining new concepts for, you know, something that uh, it can be definably ours, that has widespread appeal and uh, doesn't send, like, a wrong idea about who we are or what we're like. Yeah, we had some actual intent, and you know what? Let's talk about it on the air for a minute. All right, Actually, sure. instead yeah. of having these be secret negotiations, uh, one of our problems was that uh, our title was a lot of fun, but it leads to the accidental impression that it like comes out of a place of anger, or frustration. Yeah, like we're Which, screaming into the void. Yeah, like we're enraged. Uh, no, no, no. It, it was much more meant as a joke uh, about. Uh, how poorly we treat our dice, like what they have been subjected to over the years as gaming dice in the hands of two malcontents that have abused them so. Uh, and so the dice are screaming in horror, like, oh my God, why did we get stuck with these guys? That was the notion. So now that's hard to express in imagery. And so far, the imagery that we've come up with has, it, it really just didn't cut the muster in terms of uh, expressing the dice being scared as opposed to the, the dice men, us, 
being angry. So Dicemen being DMs. We're, we're still parsing this out and trying to like, hammer it down to something that has that that expressive quality of, of dice that are screaming, uh, but doesn't send the wrong message. And it's proven to be a lot tougher because I hate to say this about us, but while we have a lot of combined DM talent, uh, neither of us are really strong artists. Well, at least online. No, yeah. And, you know, the with, way the, in with which mechanical tools now. and uh, all that stuff. You know, I'm, I'm decent at drawing and doing small stuff, but it's harder for me to translate that because I've never really into uh, a digital medium where it can be processed and passed around. Yeah, you're really good with painting a miniature or drawing a very simple uh, black and white sketch. Right. Uh, and I'm absolutely hopeless uh, in terms of the artistic. Uh, I have some rudimentary music skills and uh, a lot of knowledge of you know, poetry and literature, but I am not uh, in any way an artist. Uh, my best day is still not as good as most people's worst day. So, right, if you're listening to this podcast and you got an idea of what we're about, I want to just put it out there that the dice are screaming comes from an old uh, poem I read, a beat poem about the trees are screaming. Which I then proceeded to name a magic deck after that uh, because it was a black and green uh, from deck from the era of the dark. And I just wanted to like hijack that name and go with like something, you know, spooky and creepy. Like I bring out my black and green deck. The trees are screaming. Yeah, and as another person pointed out to me, that was also a uh, My Little Pony episode. So. Oh, but they no. are of the beat home. Oh, did them too? Y'all got it. I don't even want that to brush no, up. No, no, us. no, no, no. Ugh. But what? yeah, there was somebody who let me know. It's like, are you guys into MLP? And I'm like. What? Uh, oh, oh, no, 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 no. We're not, but I mean, not hostile. Backing away slowly. I am. <laughs> that's you. So, yeah, uh, that's where we've been. <laughs> We're stuck. not questicles. Stop. Stop. Fox parents. <laughs> So we're not uh, we're not hostile to bronies. We have a lot of Matthew Schnarr. Yeah, you're listening. My apologies to you. Oh, we love you, man. Like uh, like your brother, but uh, yeah, we definitely have had some difficulties in reaching a consensus because when we come to other people, they always seem to think that like, hey, two guys are on a podcast. You're angry about something because of the term scream or yelling or angry. Well, we're two white dudes over the age of 50. So, I mean, like a yeah, lot of people automatically, I, you know, we, we're profiled as like, oh, so this is a, like, you know, rage thing, right? <laughs> no, 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 not actually. I, yeah, know, we're not. That is not actually the zone we come from. Uh, blessedly, I, I feel like that's a good thing about us. Uh, we're very yeah, I'm trying to remember that beat poem, man. I was, I, but I remember it always stuck with me. Oh. The trees are screaming. I think it was something about a murder. Oh, man. Yeah, the, what the tree saw. They're screaming. <laughs> what the parrot saw. So, yeah, but uh, we just got done with our last uh, podcast, which was Sorted and the Sorted, Sorted Tale of Sorts. And yeah, pretty we, we had a little touch up on that. Uh, we, wanted to, we discussed a little bit, of, I guess, about katanas, but uh, Mike had some stuff he wanted to add. Well, I, I did want to casually include a uh, tidbit that I, I didn't get to follow through on, which was 
the, the evolution of the curved blade that ultimately led to cavalry sabers. Uh, you know, the, the transition from ground-based combat uh, between footmen, which was the mm-hmm. universal condition until the charioteer, uh, and then the, the charioteers, in many cases, uh, you know, that was initially used as more of, a, you know, spears being hurled by people on a chariot, uh, and bows being fired by people on chariots. Uh, hand-to-hand combat uh, via the chariot, yeah, there were weapons for repelling others as they, they broke by, but that wasn't the emphasis of the use of the chariot, to move quickly around the edge of combat and diminish the enemy's numbers uh, to such a degree that the footmen and spearmen could eventually mop up. Uh, but as cavalry began to replace the chariot, then you begin to see swords changing their design to reflect the needs of a person on horseback. And that's like a really important historical tidbit. The arrival of the stirrup making mounted combat possible. Uh, thank you, India, for that again. I believe that was well, yeah, the origin we, of the stirrup. Didn't we discuss that a little bit with the Valkata? Oh, yes. Uh, which is one of the curved blade types. Uh, but yeah, definitely kind of a leaf shape. I forgot to mention things in the category of the tulwar and then eventually the saber, which you, know, like you, you start to see the final evolution uh, at the point where the world started to lay aside armor uh, and the conventional armies of the uh, 1700s, eight, well, like 1700s, 1800s, 1900s, uh, the cavalry saber was still a respected and feared weapon uh, but it had achieved like that last form where it was two groups of people neither of which were wearing heavy armor but dragoons and others you know they moved quickly into position used their guns and then closed and fought with saber uh, that was like the last gasp of the era of the cavalry sword so I, I felt like I left that out I didn't want to let this oh. go. Was there a section you wanted to cover? I, well? I just kind of well waffled around the katana. I mean, I love the katana as a weapon and its use, uh, aesthetics, aesthetically pleasing. But there's this aura of mysticism, I think, that surrounds it. As basically, it was a good uh, versus an unarmed person, and also the uh, armor of the period, especially the late Tokugawa era, where you had the oyori yi with the uh, just bits of metal on it around the neck and the belly. Yeah, it protected the most essential elements, but and the rest of it was thick uh, bamboo and leather. And the katana could slice right through that, demonstrated basically that that was one blade that held its own against the types of armor it was facing. Whereas in uh, the late medieval period with full plate, you had guys basically with swords unable to hurt each other because of the curve and the thickness of the armor. And they would literally grapple each other like in Doom and use the blades to try to penetrate the areas of the armor where it was the thinnest around the armpit and the sides or the neck. Yeah, that's exactly the the era in which uh, things like uh, that particular, the Edsoc type swords were beginning. Mm, Yeah, you had your bigger plan versions and uh, the uh, things that, you know, were meant to be able to use it almost like it was a pike. Uh, right, yeah. You know, you, you had fight the hand and sword. But you can also turn around and use it as a thrusting weapon, which... But like the Morning Star, the military pick, and the Warhammer, 
efficient against those types of armor because they didn't depend so much on breaking through the armor, although the military did argue with that part. But. And the evolution of other weapons, you know, when the sword became less effective against such incredible armor, that's when you saw the rise of other weapons, you know, that begin to take their place. Like the partisan over the halberd. Yeah. Particularly uh, that whole, thank you, Gygax, for teaching me at an early age you know, medieval war. I still say that back section of Unearthed Arcana about the use of Poland. I was the partisan, so while it's heavy blade and it uh, had that curved part, kind of beat the halberd had the pointy part and the choppy part and the sticky it's part. Also heavier and slower. The partisan was just one thick, curvy blade that could go right through those. Yeah, you didn't need a 225-pound dude who was a muscle man to make use of a partisan. Uh, whereas, like, the halberdiers, on the other hand, I mean... It, yeah, yeah, to be able to backswing on that thing. And that's, yeah, that's that fair. is no peach. Uh, you know, if, you, if you look at the musculature of the average person, training up to use a halberd would be a real chore. Yeah, so... But you, you see these evolutions in weaponry, and those are what made armor become less relevant, because people just said, all right, if I can't beat you with a sword because of that armor, I'm going to go get a weapon that can. And, you know, you began to see blunt weapons smashing people to the ground, and then the footman would come in and finish off any knight that hit the ground. Uh, it was just... The knave and the villain, which were not necessarily insults, but later became looked down upon because they were the ones finishing the dead off. Yeah, the villain in its original, you know, like, knave and villain did not necessarily mean evil things. These were the footmen, henchmen of a lord. And, you know, the, the lord that, you know, like, struck down another lord in battle, his knaves and villains, you know, his assistants would then move in afterwards and do the kill while the Lord was moving on to the next armored serious opponent. Uh, and, well, you can see where amongst the upper class, the people who were responsible for executing them on the battlefield were not viewed well. So, Absolutely. Thus the term villain and villainy, which is like, oh, unfairly struck. You know, a man's upon the ground and you've just shoved something through a hole in his armor and killed him. You villain. You know, that's how that evolved into the language. Oh. <laughs> yeah, fascinating side note. Absolutely. So, yeah, we I think we've uh, beat that yeah, to yeah. death, literally, like a pair of nail <laughs> villains and names. Yes. Well, you can expect no less from the podcast that touched the cursed idol even after the cleric said, don't do it. <laughs> it was calling out to me. What can I say? Yeah. I, did you not see the shiny gems in its eyes? You know what those go for in town? A oh, man. So like 500 gold a piece. Yeah. I, look, I, I, I That's gotta, two suits of full plate. Ah, uh, yeah. That My cut alone is enough to cover my bar tab. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> uh, and still have enough room left to, to pay off a, a comfortable place to stay for a while. So, yeah. We're, we're those guys. <laughs> the dungeon twits. All right, so yeah, we've got uh, a little bit of a show up for you to uh, talk about Harn. So yeah, no call-ins, but uh, hey, everyone's busy on the holiday. Oh, and we hope yeah. you're all doing fine. Also, yeah. uh, the holiest of holidays is about to kick your butt. No, not Christmas, but New Year's. <laughs> oh yeah, I, there's a wedding I'm going to be attending on that. So uh, there, there should be, you know, the the, the mead will flow like water. Uh, it is going to be a fine old time. All right, so before we get into Harn, we just got a couple things uh, get out of the way. Uh, there will be no Arcane High, but uh, 
foretelling of the future. What does the future portend to us? Oh, dear. Uh, <laughs> I'm going to hand this one to you. Oh, well. The casting of the runes and reading of entrails and looking at birds. I have determined that our next uh, episode will entail trolls. Yes, troll pack. Oh, at long last. I've been looking forward to this for a long while. We, yeah. Uh, Rune Quests offering Troll Pack, which is semi-legendary in its own right. Yeah, along with travelers like the, the original Barger and Oslin, alien appendixes. They were called appendixes. And, uh, well, yeah. the, the Encyclopedias. Yeah, the, the original source books that uh, the traveler people put out uh, in included like the alien races uh, that humanity had encountered and got along reasonably well with but for RuneQuest uh, they issued the troll pack yeah which is a very serious look at a non-human race but what whimsical at times as well there's a lot of humor in it but it's also a lot of lore and yeah with uh, the starter set coming out which we'll review uh, as well shortly some other things from Quest. Uh, I've been running the uh, Smoking Ruins and other stories. So, ooh. So, yeah, but Troll Pack was very. Uh, you could definitely tell that they, they knew not only their lore, but it factored very heavily in a lot of different things, talking about the mistress race of the trolls. Well, so, we'll be covering that one in the next one. So, the Oniromancery or Rune Readings or Tea Leaf Gazing, Navel Gazing. In yeah, my the, case. the Tassiomancer was. Uh insufficiently caffeinated today so he handed it over to the, oh, yeah, well. to the rune meister so yeah we got <laughs> so that's what we'll be drawing forth is so stick around next week for our review of troll pack and a retrospective of it as well so all right uh we're gonna cut out for a minute and be right back so you stick around and enjoy the music So we're back. Hey, hope you enjoyed that little uh, interlude there. It's a nice one. Called the alley. Yeah, I liked that one. Yeah, I, it's kind of like being on hold, except hipper. Uh, you know what? You got a point. I, you know, I, I don't like being on hold, and I don't usually like being on hold music. But I listened to that, and I was like, well, no, no, this is okay. Uh, I'm kind of in a groovy place. I, I could sit here and wait for a while with this. Yeah, we really like the. Uh, <laughs> The reason why we put a lot of kind of jazz and beat stuff in there is because that's the way we feel. It's not like slam dungeon mastering, but it's more like we're just bouncing ideas off. And sometimes it really works out well. And other times it's just a discombobulated mess. So we appreciate you folks sticking through those discombobulated like, uh, messes. Like Krakow Jazz Symphony Orchestra. Yeah, so <clears throat> let's talk about one of the games from back in the day that I don't think it's enough appreciation. We're talking about the Dark Trilogy of games, and I think that would be Warhammer Fantasy Roleplay. Uh, I would also put in there the Dragon Age and the Dragon Age Roleplay game from Green Roman. And uh, recently, The Witcher. And of course, the not Okay, only... fair. That's a good grim dark offering. But here's another one that kind of is outside that trilogy. When we're talking about Bruce Galloway's Fantasy Wargaming, and how he wanted to capture an authentic medieval simulation type game. I think he 
was his intentions were in the right place, but he kind of failed. Mm-hmm. Pardon me to deliver the mainstay of the game, which was you get the feeling of basically being in a filthy medieval town or community from fantasy wargaming, but you don't get a lot of what it was like to be in a magical place filled with elves and dwarves at the same time. If you're going to be one, a strictly medieval fantasy or medieval uh, recreation with some minor fantasy elements such as magic and a couple of strange races. That's one thing, but he kind of also went for the gusto of the D&D experience or Tunnels and Trolls. And I think it missed its mark. Now here's one that uh, did all of those things and didn't fail at any of them. Yeah, this is why Hard stands apart. Okay, there's, there's a quality here about this piece of work that is reminiscent of the incredible creativity and uh, new material that is visible in RuneQuest. Mm-hmm. Uh, there is all of the, the, much of the sense of historical accuracy that is present in fantasy wargaming. Uh, there is a very you know, visible smattering of the Tolkien-esque uh, dwarves and elves uh, and, you know, world with a subtle magic all about it uh, that is its own. All of these things are here and somehow it doesn't feel disjointed and slapped together haphazardly. It feels like a good real campaign with its own system for role-playing gaming. Yeah, it's genuinely a real authentic medieval setting with some elements of low magic and high fantasy like elves and dwarves with some orcs as well. Because, you know, who doesn't love kicking down dwarves and beating up some orcs behind them? But <laughs> nonetheless, um, let's talk about Harnwise, what it is. It was first appeared in 1983. I mean, I caught wind of it on the back covers of some Dragon magazines and from Columbia Games. And it was a basically a folio which had some maps basically a, an encyclopedia like the world, original World of Greyhawk book. Now, I only saw it afterwards because it was in a collection of stuff. I never bought it. I was just like, oh, this looks really cool. Harn definitely seemed exotic. But Yeah, and it was certainly in the advertising of the time. Uh, its release period was 1983, uh, and Robin you know, Crosby uh, came out with this. Uh, it was, you know, his baby, I mean, obviously other people were involved in the creation of it, but... 1983, and it starts appearing in the ads in Dragon Magazine, which we were routinely reading. So, <clears throat> with the most candid honesty that we can give you here, we have to admit, this is one we've never DM'd. Um, and we, we did warn about that earlier. I, I got to play in it uh, from a guy uh, that was running it at uh, Western Michigan. Now, even though we have an extremely low level of experience with this personally, uh, it's just kind of too important to the history of gaming. I mean, it, it has such a nice place in that time period and era as a respected game that we can't really just go, well, oh, let's not cover it because we don't have the personal touch. Uh, we just couldn't do it. We, we actually feel like it deserves to be covered and mentioned because frankly, it was the good example it was the example of the game that combined the historical realism 
with the fantasy elements, and it did it all pretty smoothly. Yeah, it didn't. The app magic was not overemphasized. It definitely was around. You definitely had to be aware of it, but it didn't predominate everything. But anyway, getting back to the main part of it, the, the prehistory of the game. Uh, this guy uh, and Robin Crosby, he did a lot of work with it, and he created his own map and had uh, what was called the Harndex, uh, what it was called. And then he wanted to put that from just a generic encyclopedia into its own game system. So uh, originally it was just meant to be grafted into your game. You could use it as presented as a, your main campaign, or you could uh, just have it as a place to explore as a secondary area off the mainline. Yeah, and to be specific, the setting was Harn. The game system that came for the setting was Harn Master. Yeah. Uh, and the Harn Dex was much of the indexed material that uh, codices and things like that that would be of use to the game master. Uh, so, you know, for 1983, the guy had really fleshed things out pretty well. I mean, it's not like D&D wasn't around uh, as an example. But, right, the original polio was just basically use this with your game system, here's some ideas. He had then, obviously been in gaming for some time to develop this. Uh, now, Columbia Games, uh, his little, like, uh, what was it? I, I think he incorporated uh, something as Celestia, which is a uh, reference to a place in Harn. But uh, <laughs> the work he must have put in on this still yeah. amazes me because there's so much detail. And much like Mr. Stafford from RuneQuest, you get the impression of Mr. Crosby as being a person who had a great passion for what he was creating. Yeah, it's right up there with Tukamel and Glorantha. It's a really deep dive into the lore of its own consistency of its setting. So, anyway, one of the big things was I always liked the kind of Norman swordsman on horseback, uh, silhouetted by the sunset near Castle. It was uh, kind of striking to me. And little did I know that it would pretty much cover a Norman type setting in England. Of course, the place is much bigger. Yeah, imagine something uh, of the British Isles except that they are magnified in size to like roughly triple that uh, so that you can divide it up into various kingdoms and still have a lot of ground to cover. Uh, so it's much larger than the actual British Isles, but the concepts at play are very similar in terms of the local culture. Uh, and eventually they expanded the world. Uh, and you, it, it's worth mentioning that Although the game begins in its initial incarnation as like focused on a cluster, a small cluster of cultures on a British Isles type setting that will seem familiar to persons uh, who know Norman and Saxon history, it doesn't end there. It, it proceeded to spread outwards over the years, adding more and more territory, you know, like uh, mainlands and other nations around the globe. Uh, so. Uh, big kudos to them, you know, they, they... Yeah, it was, you know, even though it has magical elements, a lot of uh, time and energy was spent on making this as detailed and realistic as the setting as it could, within the consistency of its own worldview. But, um, one of the big things is, of course, there was no alignment in heart. There was no good or evil, per se. Uh, it had a very high level of detail with many of the NPCs named right down to the names of the families of peasants who farmed the land, as well as all the fortifications and towns and adventure areas 
detailed write-down with maps and data. So, one of the things that people liked about Harn was the low magic. So let's talk about that. The magic system of Harn is pretty much set into its own worldview of various elemental forces that are classical in deism and uh, classical. Uh, say classical twice but I mentioned it anyway the traditional forms of magic that have always been viewed in the, resulting around the elemental planes and various astrological phenomena and that's what it does is it talks roughly about when they did come out with hard nasty they talk specifically about the types of ways of magic including runes and other forms which hey kind of also harken back to that fantasy bargaining book yeah, and if you scale back a campaign's magic types, uh, and I'm, I'm just using examples, not uh, precise spells from Harn per se, uh, but by way of example for simple magics, uh, if you were, you know, making use of elemental connections, uh, you would be like scrying by uh, water or fire, divining, right. uh, you know, the uh, or the simplest of conjurations uh, you know to uh, conjure an element these are not radical alterations like casting uh, I cast uh, creeping doom you know just that stuff is off the table right so for Harn you have to alter your expectations and understand that you could have a subtle influence but you're not going to just suddenly devastate the landscape right uh, the six elemental principles were uh, air light illusion Lavabi, or however you want to pronounce that, uh, fire and metal and artifice, life, growth, and decay, water and cold, and mind, spirit, knowledge. And they were arranged in a wheel, and each one was opposed to its diametrically opposite. So it was convocations mostly. And as you grew in power and your use of spells, there were neutral spells that weren't part of any convocation that could be used by any mage. And eventually you would become a gray mage, losing both the penalties and bonuses based on the elemental alignments, becoming truly a master or true magi yeah. of the art. Which And there was also rules for psionics. So yeah, Scott Bonnie, you could totally play a psionicist. <laughs> Looking at right at you, bro. <laughs> so, I mean, the magic system of, well worked in a consistency with its world that there were principal elemental fundamentals that you could channel or convocate to and use spells as magic as Mike said. And you could be very powerful because the beauty of a low magic system is that it applies to everybody up to and including the NPCs. So the persons who have thoughtfully invested their time and skills in becoming a powerful mage uh, you find yourself with comparatively little powerful opposition uh, in the ability to use subtle and you know cunning spells to your party's advantage uh, and you know it, it takes a skillful DM to manage the threats and opposition that you face in a way that challenges you so right you would use a wind to knock aside arrows uh, at high levels you could conjure a wall of fire out of nothing yeah um, that elemental control is something else. But, uh, yeah, and at high levels, you could cause lightning to hit. But again, these are things that you just can't do in a hurry, and they take a lot of time to develop out of your character, which means that for a lot of the period of time, your character is going to be reduced to 
many lesser but very useful tasks that people just swinging swords and wearing heavy armor aren't going to be able to accomplish. The ability to divine the outcome of an action before you undertake it or conjure an illusion. Yeah, you're not going to be able to blindside people with a fireball. Uh, it, you know, that's less of the uh, the atmosphere here. Yeah, we are talking about the things where you're still extremely useful in terms of gaining an edge, knowing where to go, having an idea of what you may be facing shortly, and then being able to skirt the edge of or defuse a lot of things uh, by subtler means than mass yeah, charms and changing people's attitude or yeah, even just making your appearance seem more grand, brightening, or pleasing. Yeah, remember Gandalf and, uh, and Rivendell, you know? decides to use the black speech and just terrifies the crap out of everybody in the room. Uh, hey, you know, that's just a parlor trick, but it's it's pretty Im freaking impressive. Well, yeah, compared to the fireballs thing and stuff. But yes, you could in Harn eventually cast fireballs, but the fire shield and wall of fire was much, much more pleasing and easier to cast because yeah. uh, when you're facing a mass of people and you conjure a wall of fire before them, that cuts the uh, cavalry charge right down to nothing. Yeah, yeah. Everybody suddenly changes their minds about how what what's their degree of commitment to this. Yeah, because horses shun away from fire, and yeah. so that's the realism that was in harm. Was initially uh, there was a lot of things like your eyesight and your handiness was a determining factor right off with your attributes, as well as your social class and the human cultures that were presented had their own livery and heraldry that worked within the showing their status of the family their donation to the uh, royalty of the land. And, and depending on where you travel, that this is to your advantage or disadvantage. Yeah. Because uh, not everybody gets along with everybody. Much like in RuneQuest, uh, you know, all right, yeah. in RuneQuest, hospitality is much more the order of the day most of the time. Not quite so hard. Socially, uh, there was a much more competitive atmosphere, which meant that a certain amount of politics was just baked right into the nature of the game. The understanding that not everyone you encounter as you travel from county to county, from you know, little kingdom to kingdom, not everyone is going to like you. And in fact, you might actually be targeted based on your association with others. Right. And so this used the 3 to 18 scale for attributes. Very and they familiar. all used uh, the percentile dice with 1 through 95, mostly being ranked and then, uh, you know, bumbles and criticals on that. And then we get to the other part that people remember about Harn, and this is something that is somewhat controversial in gaming, because most of our game set room rules are combat engines. If you look at Dungeons and & Dragons and RuneQuest specifically, the most of so. you're basically getting involved with the combat aspect. You needed to know combat more than you needed to know how to resolve skills or uh, reaction roles between NPCs and players. And that sort of set the tone for most of these early games was basically combat was the presiding factor. Now, Harn and RuneQuest also had skill resolution. So that is a uh, elevation or progression of the role-playing experience at this time. And just like RuneQuest, there's a lot of occupations you find yourself in, but mostly you're going to find yourself as an adventurer. But the best you could hope for is being a lowly lord and a minor son being released because if you were that high in Harn, you were not going to be wandering the countryside yeah. looking for holes in the ground to pl uh, plunder. And that was right out of the beginnings of the, the 
game's concept. Uh, you know, Crosby had already made up his mind that there will be no great lords traveling the land uh, as they wish. That simply wasn't the way of the world. I mean, only in the greatest of wars do the actual lords go out and go onto the field. And then, once they're done, they go home. Uh, for the wanderer, for the traveler, and the adventurer, you their life easily, is a harder one. Yeah, you could easily be a second or third son, uh, or you know, someone associated or affiliated uh, to someone important. But you could not be the actual upper crust of nobility and travel. You had expectations upon you, and that was all there was to it. I approve. I thought that was like a thoughtful choice, which also uh, helps take the sting out of like it was 1983. So you did see a lot of power gamers in those days that would. Love yeah, I'm the Lord's son. What are you going to do? You're going to let us sleep. Yeah, you're going to let us sleep here for free, right, innkeeper? Yeah. You're going to clear this bar tab up? No way I'm paying you know, like three copper pieces for a mead instead of two. You're trying to rip me off? You know that's a crime, right? Yeah. <laughs> Just, yeah oh you get trying to throw anybody in the dungeon of the stocks. Yeah, so that didn't happen here. But anyway, the, here's the other part. is The combat system was realistic, and when you say realism, you definitely mean slower. Now, once you get used to something, you can play a couple rounds of Harn pretty fast. But here was the trick. Harn took into different degrees of injury. So you could be wounded different in a fight with different weapons or different ways, especially during a battle. And each wound will heal differently. Yeah. Including levels of infection. Oh yeah, in Harn you can get an infected wound and die rather quickly. So fortunately in Harn, healing was an art. And healers were not like, oh, these are magic bandages. That, they have healed a great hero in the past. We will apply them to you. Now get those filthy things away from me and throw them in a fire. <laughs> I want clean, fresh water. Thank you very much. And unused linen uh, to wrap my wounds. No, uh, here's where Harn gets some undeserved harshness into its reputation. Okay, this is one of the dings. Um, and it's a ding that is familiar to us because Traveler took the same hit. Yeah. Like death during character creation uh, really stuck in people's minds because if it ever happened to you you remembered that for like dude I didn't even make it out of the creation process like <laughs> I was I was killed in training uh, now Harn for instance there there are players from the, the old days that speak I'm not one of them but right. there are people who have when when they speak of their experience with Harn like yeah, like, dude, I, I got in, like, three fights during the entire course of our game, and it was, like, I think our fourth session, I had just gone through that third fight, I got an infected wound, and my character died. Right. And that and was it. That yeah, was, that was, it was a big character. shocker to people. Like, you actually have to keep track of, yeah, a wound from an arrow is different than a wound from a mace or dagger, and definitely a sword cut is different than a hack from an axe. So, yeah, the conditions and the level of care you received after the fact had a decided impact on how that turned out. And I mean, if you thought you were just going to slap a field dressing on that and walk it off, <laughs> yeah, nope. Oh, oh, you sweet summer child, the education you are about to receive. Uh, so yeah, Harn had its unique complexities. There were there were elements that were wonderfully realistic in terms of how difficult and dangerous combat really was 
but well it's as if like how do people get around in medieval times dying all the time because we don't have hit points we just have in everybody has a level of injury that you can sustain yeah based on your stamina and your physical endurance another fascinating side note they did not have the traditional hit point system yeah you got wounds and if it was a severe wound and you were treated as if you had a severe wound in that area and yeah your armor and your training if you parried or had a shield yeah, everybody carries a shield yeah, it, two-handed it, sword users and axemen. Yeah, they still exist, but a little crazier than your most of your other characters. Yeah, they're all commitment. Yeah, just the, the best best defense is a great offense. Um, it sounds somebody good carrying principle. a two-handed axe in that game is somebody you have to deal with, and that gives us back to another character like Olaf. The axe would be very at home in Harn from the fact that he just had a two-handed axe, didn't carry a shield. People left him alone because that guy's all out for he's all out to harm you. Yeah, that, he was very much about like doling out the hurt. But remember, before creating Olaf, uh, before Oli of the Axe came into being, I had lost two illusionists in a row. Yeah, my first still, two characters still uh, up in a tree over that one. Yeah, you know, the, I, one made it to third level, one made it to fourth level. But after the second death, I didn't take it too personally. But I, I showed up the next week with my new character. His name's Olaf of the Axe. He carries a huge axe. And he has a couple of smaller axes in case he has to throw one at somebody from a distance. <laughs> but that's it. That's it. He's, he's just all axes all the time. Oh, and a dagger. But that's pretty. Well, yeah, I mean, in case I'm devoured by something and I have to cut my way out. That's it. That's the only reason to have one. So, well, yeah, you know, <laughs> people were upset in harm, like, wow, an arrow shot to the eye kills you? Yeah. You uh, yeah, much. it's pretty much next head, neck head, head injuries are... Oh, there's such bad news. Oh, uh, wow, wow. Why does every time you get hit in the head, my character ends up dying or going unconscious? <laughs> As I look off in the distance. <laughs> well, that's your realism for you. And, hey, let's face it, this brings in a classic gaming debate. Uh, is realism awesome or does realism suck? Okay. I, and there are two edges to that sword. Yeah. And Harn is one edge of that sword, which is its realism is discomforting uh, for many people who are used to the more high fantasy aspect of let's gloss over the details on this and move on to the adventure. Uh, Harn, staying alive sometimes is the adventure. You know, that... Yep, food and hunger are essential parts and that was another thing that was included in here it was an attention to detail to the autonomy that certain provinces would be rolled on provisionally under province probably probably at a certain time i think it was quarterly that you would determine uh, what the status of land was good harvest bad harvest and a success of bad harvest would lead to famine and uh, no amount of money in a famine area can buy food. Yeah, I mean, you no amount. You you could be as rich filled with silver. You know, rich rich as lords. All you can get is a bowl of watery gruel. I mean, you know, just what? What do you mean I can't buy food? Well, there's no food to buy. Yeah, I, like you could raid somebody's larder. Uh, you send the, the roguish type character in, and you're like, well, I found three rutabagas uh, and a moldy and, carrot. Yeah, and. <laughs> uh, but there's there's not a scrap of grain to make bread left in the entire area so i mean we're, we're down to root vegetables dude we got to stone soup this 
you know. <laughs> and some people didn't get that. It's like, why couldn't you just buy stuff? And it's like, well, there's not, you know, warfare. Uh, provinces at war in Harn. It were hard to buy weapons and uh, even get food or travel unprohibited. Uh, and let's face it, the economy of the ancient world, sometimes uh, a wet season uh, hits at the wrong moment and the spoilage or loss to the crops means that all of a sudden, whether there was warfare or not, people have only what is available to them uh, for storing for winter. And, you know, they, they may even have difficulty paying the, the taxes or the tithe in terms of food that is supposed to go up the chain to their lord. But after everybody's taken their cut, there's nothing left in that little town to spare. So it, it doesn't have to be severe, total famine where like, oh no, they're all gonna die. But there just isn't a whole lot to go around to share. And you may find yourself economically obligated to spend a huge amount of money to acquire a tiny amount of food. Uh, and vice versa, there can be periods of incredible luxury. Sure. Harn acknowledged that too. It wasn't all bad news. Uh, the historical realism kicks in again to people's benefit or deficit. And that's, again, it's a facet that makes this one of the more amazing games offered at the time. Yeah, and it also covers the elves. It had a whole uh, edition dedicated to the kingdom of the elves as well as the uh, area of the dwarves. And, um, yeah, I think they had a, like a Viking-like setting as well. Yes, they did. And uh, had some other stuff. But I didn't catch much of it. It was rather hard to find because it was... Columbia Games, although ubiquitous, was just not a big company. And they kept their print run small, and they uh, distributed to wherever they were basically selling at the time. Well, they were very smart in terms of self-management, okay? They did not fall prey to the crazed excess of the time. Where some companies like, hey, on our next print run, let's do 50,000 copies. And then, like, only 10,000 of them sell, and they're hosed. Uh, one of the reasons they stayed healthy and continued producing for so long is that they had a pretty firm grasp on where they were as a niche and their sales numbers their publishing uh, numbers were reasonable given their relative popularity uh, and so they never became huge they never had that mondo presence that so many others did but they stayed around for a good long while and they were remembered with great affection by those who did not die of infected wounds. Yeah, or, indeed. Or starved to death in it. Or got shot in the head. How come every time I get my wound in my head, my character dies? Again, stare off in the distance. Uh, yeah, if I can't explain this for you, I'm not sure anybody can. <laughs> All right. Well, we're going to take a brief break. Be right back. And we're going to wrap this up and uh, say our goodbyes. But uh, stick around. So, wow, those are good little bongo drums, yeah. Yeah, I know, right? It was like a little tiki bar, <laughs> you know, they, they got the little drinks and the coconut shell with the umbrella sticking out of it, and the bits of fruit chopped up. I yeah, <laughs> which has absolutely nothing to do with Arn, so, yeah. Kind of in a groovy little place, though. Right, and, you know, Arn had a <coughs> unique uh, theology and pantheon as well, about ten gods, and uh, each one of those gods covered pretty much what you'd expect uh, the gods uh, would, death, life, uh, various forms of society, and uh, they were seen in different ways by different folk. 
And of course, the God of Death was uh, pretty much uh, not a fun God in this one. So, no. And uh, <laughs> definitely on the moralistic term of evil. But Harn loomed large for a, quite a while and it's had an impact, although a subtle one. And I think the reason why we bring it up is when we talk about the Dark Trilogy of Grimdark fantasy gaming. And again, to just hit home, Harn is one of the lesser ones because you have Warhammer Fantasy Roleplay, which we've covered. Well, let's be uh, somewhat more specific. Uh, it's it's on the lighter spectrum of the grimdark setting because Harn, honestly, campaign-wise, was not really set to, like, you know, it's a world hanging on the brink of the end. You know, terrible forces are arrayed against it. Demons will flood the land and all will come to ruination. Not so much, but... The brutality, the uh, easiness of death, uh, the likelihood of war and political conflict, it did make it a challenging setting to work in, even if it had a slightly less high magic, slightly less high monster type of setting. Uh, It did have orcs and such. Well, it did have monsters, but you, you were just as likely to die of starvation as you were to die by a magic or so yeah uh, those were equal risks yeah if you didn't have your food count up and you were in the middle of nowhere during a famine well you might just die yeah so all right good for you you took three days to make it over the hills uh you know while on starvation level rations you're like all you got is like half a biscuit and uh you know a mouthful of water uh, and when you get over to the other side, what condition are they in? Uh, if they're in famine mode, you're as screwed as you were when you were in the middle of nowhere. So, Yeah, and so we're like Mike said, for some people, they didn't want to deal with that level of realism. And it's nothing wrong with saying that, hey, that's too much. But I think games like Witcher and even Dragon Age, which had kind of horrific and dark themes to them, they weren't as grim dark as, of course, Warhammer Fantasy roleplay, but that kind of goes without saying because that was like the gonzo approach yeah. the the, um, the absolute worst is about to happen and the you're gods here. of chaos are conspiring against you at every turn not against you personally but good but against everything oh, yeah don't, everyone don't get that uh, self-inflated opinion of yourself <laughs> yeah it's just don't let the, it get to get ahead of you there buddy. they're planning to destroy everything the earth but that's where i keep all my stuff well, now that's gone too. <laughs> oh, not cool. So, yeah, Harn is definitely a worthy look. It it does apply itself. The Harn Master game system is still available. It's still being published, but you have to look for it. And, of course, the PDFs are out there too. Drive through RPG uh, can help you with that. And Columbia Games' own website. Yep, and so you can get uh, back issues of stuff if you want to get into Harn. Now's a good time as any, and it's a great game to really, if you really are in that simulationist mode and you're willing to put in the extra work as a game master, I think you'd be well rewarded. Yeah, I'm going to paraphrase what was in the original uh, review of it by Roger Moore uh, in Dragon Magazine many, many years ago, uh, which it's not an ideal setting for new and amateur players. It is a tough learning curve. However, if you have very experienced players that are prepared for some of the minute details that they're going to have to pay attention to, then yes, this this is a good choice. Uh, 
for that team of hardened players that really know their way around an adventuring setting. If you want to deliver new challenges, things that, like, hey, this is a little change of pace, Harn is a terrific option. I mean, the readings I've done on it are fascinating, and it it has a certain appeal to me because as I look back at some of the things that I incorporated into handwritten campaign settings, they are reminiscent of Harn, the lowered magic availability, the increased difficulty of healing up after battle, uh, and the care and attention that players would have to pay to uh, the distance they traveled and the amount of supplies they had in terms of food and water. Those were elements that I routinely added to home campaigns. And here's a campaign world that literally does all of those things automatically. Those are a facet of that type type of game. Yeah, they actually have a rule effect on so how well-fed and uh, how rested you are. And that's the big thing is after battles, after fighting a nest full of orcs or other nasties, you would have to set time aside to recover from your wounds and heal up. Yeah. And you couldn't just like, okay, what's next? <laughs> oh, well, uh, yeah, post-injury infection. Uh. <laughs> well, as long as you had a good healer, and uh, here's the difference. The Elvish healers were the best. Um, as long as you had a good healer and a place, to, a safe place to hold up, you were fine. More or less. I mean, barring any bad rolls, there's always... There's what do you mean I rolled a 0-1? Well, I guess you're... Ooh. Yeah, 95, a higher, you're, you're, yep, you're infected. Welcome to gas gangrene. You're, oh! That leg is coming off. Uh, man. I shouldn't have trusted Whoa. the ivermectin. <laughs> oh! Stop. Yeah, that happened. It did, but it uh, had to. All right. Well, hey, on that note, I think we're going to wrap it up. Harn's a great uh, game. You should definitely look at it if you're interested in that stuff. And like, uh, I think it's very timely to put Roger Moore's assessment on it. So yeah. here we, we are at the end of the year, Dice are Screaming. So we're going to spend a little time uh, next episode catching up on things that happened and what uh, some of the things that... Uh, we've done over the last year and we're going to put the, uh, incorporate that into our podcast. Uh, rather than just putting one episode, we're going to devote a little time to each one. So we're going to go through that. If you of course enjoy our podcast, uh, you can download the ink crap yourself and send us a voice message, or you can get on Facebook on Facebook group of the dice of screaming. We'll add you there and you can put your comments and on under each episode. And you we know, like likes. Yeah, we do. We we uh we deal in head head paths and they make the kimono juice boxes. <laughs> they, they do make the kimono flutter. <laughs> Iron my way through a life with head paths. So, all right. Well, hey, uh, we really appreciate you listening. And of course, uh, let us know that uh, what you thought of the episode by either using an anchor app or, of course, the letting us know on the dice or screaming Facebook page group. But until next time. May the dice always roll in your favor. We're out. See ya.